Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between American icon Candace Bergen and Abigail Pogrebin, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Acclaimed for her decade-long lead role in the recently revived Murphy Brown, Bergen's acting career, from carnal knowledge to Boston legal, spans television, film, and Broadway. Her memoir, A Fine Romance, was an instant bestseller. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on November 18th, 2015. Good evening, everyone. I'm so glad you're all here. I developed my crush on Candace Bergen in 1998 when I read her first memoir, Knockwood, which was published in 1984. I read this book at first reluctantly and dutifully. At the time, I was the producer for Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes, and he suggested we do a profile of Candace Bergen just as she was completing her 10th and final year as Murphy Brown, a role she had ironically often described as Mike Wallace in a dress. <laughs> so reading her book was my homework prep. And I say I read it reluctantly because I assumed it would be a boilerplate, saccharine celebrity memoir stripped of anything true. On the contrary, it was riveting, honest, sometimes painfully so. Not to mention, it was stirringly, skillfully written, as is her newest memoir, A Fine Romance, which I truly could not put down, and which has received glowing reviews and which we'll be talking about tonight. It's not only full of unvarnished revelations with plenty of icons floating through it, Elizabeth Taylor, Mike Nichols, Nora Ephron, John Guare, but it's also another beautifully told story. I know you all know her resume, which in the time we have, I can only summarize, but here are the bullet points. Five Emmy Awards for Murphy Brown, an Oscar nomination for Starting Over, memorable film roles roles in the group, Carnal Carnal Knowledge, Gandhi and Miss Congeniality, to name just a few, post-Murphy TV roles in Sex and the City, Boston Legal, and Battle Creek, and Broadway roles in Hurley Burley, Love Letters, and The Best Man. She's the first woman to ever host Saturday Night Live and the first woman to join the Five Timers Club when she hosted SNL for the fifth time in 1990. She was a Vogue cover model and she had her own talk show on Oxygen. When I say I had a crush on Candace back in 98, that's actually not hyperbole. I felt I understood her somehow, and I wanted to find a way to convey that during the brief time we spent setting up the Wallace interviews in her L.A. refuge in the hills and later her magical 16th century French manor house, which she'd shared with her first late husband, Louis Mal. But every 60-minute segment ends, and the fantasy of a friendship dissolves. I fully expected Bergen to forget our brief connection, but when the piece aired... I received the most breathtaking bouquet of flowers I've ever seen. And when my daughter Molly was born, which is 16 years ago now, I received the most exquisite infant outfit printed with roses. Molly has never been that well-dressed again. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Candace Bergen. Before I let Candace say anything, I just wanted to show a very brief clip 
of the 60 Minutes piece. We're just going to give you a taste. How do I do it? How'd you get the job? Did you have to audition for it? Oh, yeah, and I failed. What are you talking about? They didn't want me. They wanted Heather Locklear. And I had to read for the head of CBS then. And he pushed a button, and the electric drapes were closed. And so I was sitting in a darkened office with one sort of light over my head for two or three people. And then I had to read this comedy scene, and I just went right into the tank. She was saved by Diane English, the show's creator, who was sure Bergen was perfect for the part. I think that in this situation, who she is and who this character was, it was just the perfect match. It was an explosion. And that's the reason why I think the series worked, is because we cast exactly the right person. America loved seeing this gorgeous woman go for it, go for the jugular, allow herself to fall on her tush. How much of you, in fact, is Murphy Brown? Not as much as I would like. You know, I think a lot of women would like to be more like Murphy Brown, which is why I think the show resonated so well with women. I think women love her fearlessness. Uh, women love, well, you know, of course, she was always described as Mike Wallace in a dress, which was my favorite description of Murphy Brown. There we go. So let's talk about the title of your book as a start, if we would, A Fine Romance. It just came to me as if in a vision. And, um, and then I, I told Simon and Schuster that that's what I wanted to call it. And they said, okay. I thought, there's no pushback at all on this? <laughs> and so, so we did. Because, of course, it, it came to me because I, it, the book I always saw is a love letter to my daughter. And um, so, thus, a fine romance. And it, there's, but there's many romances in this book. Yes. Um, and what would you say are the, sort of the, the main kind of love stories? Um, my first husband, my, the, the late film director, Louis Mal, and, and my daughter. And Murphy, in a way, is a love story. And Murphy is very, very much a love story. And that story. cast, it seemed, was... And, a... and the cast, we got along so beautifully. We went on ski trips together. Nobody would ever heard of anything like that. <laughs> um, and, and I'm married now to a Jewish man. Um, <laughs> just thought you'd be happy to hear that. <laughs> The second I moved in, I started getting letters from the JDL. I thought, really? <laughs> and I'm not even Jewish. Uh, the fundraisers started immediately. And, and he is, he's, in a way, the, the final love story in the book, yeah. which we will get to, um, Marshall Rose. It's, it really is an unflinchingly honest book, and I think it's part of... I, it's the test, I think, of a good memoir. It's the Catherine Graham test of why hers was so successful. If you're going to write a memoir, you should really tell the truth. But it's hard when you're a public figure and people are still watching you and they have their vision of Candace Bergen. Um, did you worry about the level of nakedness? You know, I, um, in hindsight, I went a few steps too far because I would put off writing all day and then into the evening and then finally around 11 o'clock and I wrote on an iPad, which of course is insane. And then finally I got a keyboard for the iPad. So the formerly weightless iPad now weighed 30 pounds, but I had a keyboard. And Where would you write? I would write in bed. 
And um, and I would write till two or three in the morning. And so I wasn't really connected to what I was writing. It was just kind of going through me to the iPad. And I just sort of blindly sent it in because I think I knew that um, if I, because I know you have to give something away in, in any kind of memoir like this. Um, and and uh, the reaction was sort of unbalanced when it came out. I was kind of surprised that people sort of took it and caricatured it and and made it. Um, I mean, for instance, just I, I talked about putting on weight, which I put on thirty pounds since I was in my sixties. I put on thirty pounds, um, and it was on the third page of the post. I thought, what? <laughs> By, by even the post standards, how is this news? But um, it, it's also late in the book that that you talk about weight and all of the issues of aging. So at least someone was reading that far. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, exactly. But but it, it, it almost it eclipsed a lot of the rest of the book. It seemed was in those first few days. It seems was just yeah, the, totally. fo- the focus on that. Totally. And I think part of it is that women just never say it. They just never say it. I mean, didn't you find... No, I, I just thought I should say what women want to hear but don't say. And uh, and also about being a celebrity and having that wane and what that feels like. And, um, you know, just sort of not being able to get into a restaurant. It's like, hello? <laughs> you want me to spell my name? Um, <laughs> Uh, and it, it's very humbling, and I thought it, it was sort of interesting to to talk about that because I'd never seen anyone mention it, um, and and about getting older and about the, the you know the gaping hole that your child leaving for college leaves in your life, and and uh, one of my closest friends who also whose son was leaving for college at the same time said. I'm not going to make this a personal tragedy. Of course, she was weeping as she said it, but um, I, it, it's uh, and I and I talked about my late husband's illness and um, the impact that that had on my daughter and I, who who he was ill at home for about a year. Um, so it, it's it's about the later years. And before we get to kind of the beginning of the book. Um, and Chloe particularly, there's an issue that runs through your first memoir and somewhat in this too of, of just your beauty and how, frankly, it was, it got tremendous, it was, it was the narrative of Candace Bergen for so much of your life and your career, really until Murphy Brown. It feels like it almost got in the way sometimes of your opportunities or the respect that you had as an actor. And how, as you began, you talk about the fact that that's not your identity anymore. How has that kind of changed the way you feel about yourself and also the way you look back at those years and how defining they were? It's, uh, she's such a smart girl. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because I now think about it a lot because no one, most people don't start out wanting to be a beauty. My parents were very smart. They they never mentioned it. They didn't want me to to be swayed by that. or So I really, it was just not an issue. It was never discussed at home. But then people around me started having such big reactions to it. And and what happens is, is that I, I had no connection to how I looked. Um, I mean, I would have 
been something far different. I think I would have written more. I would have uh, worked with animals. I would have, uh, and but but because you you look a certain way that has almost nothing to do with who you feel inside. I mean, I I love doing broad comedy, which as a beauty you're not allowed to do. It wasn't until Murphy that I got to do that, and um, so it takes you on a wayward journey away from yourself, I think. And being older, for instance, now I, I, I can't watch myself on screen. It's, and I was never vain, but now it's just too hard. I mean, really? and high def, it's excruciating. <laughs> uh, 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 so, I mean, things have changed. And now that I'm breathing on 70, um, I feel that I've kind of been let loose, and um, and that's and that's very nice and freeing. Yeah, bit. the quote um, in the book: "Beauty is terrifying. Life smiles upon you. Everything com- everything comes to you. You have done nothing to deserve it." Yeah, yeah. I mean, being beautiful. There are some downsides to being beautiful, and I, I think that women who I, I read and I talk to women who would love to have been beautiful, it, it isn't a smooth, direct path to personhood. In fact, it, it, um, I think it delays your maturation considerably. Um, and uh, the men who are attracted to you are usually men who are attracted to you for all the wrong reasons, and they're usually the assholes, frankly. Um, and uh, so, so it doesn't really edit out the people that you would have edited out yourself. And and it and as I said before, it it shapes who you are, and then and then it takes a few steps backward to try to unshape that. And it, it, I was struck by the line, and we will get to the. The amazing Chloe, but there was she went through an, an awkward adolescent stage, as most as most kids do, or many kids do. And you actually write that you're almost relieved that she wasn't going to be beautiful. She obviously ended up being stunning, but it it was that deep for you that you would almost feel like I don't want to saddle her with that, um, where most people would feel like it's an ultimate blessing, or certainly yeah, she, one blessing. Chloe always had a huge personality, just huge. And very funny and quirky and sort of spiky little kid. And 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 until she was 13 or 14, I thought, wow, she's just going to look like a good-looking kind of odd kid. And that's great because she'll just skip all of the bullshit of the of being beautiful. And um, but she's too smart for that. She just doesn't pay any attention to it. So let's get to how she arrived, which is starts with your marriage, which was kind of unlikely by itself. You were not married until age... 39. 30, 39. No, 34. 34, 34 right. sorry. Um, so how did you meet Louis? And we'll, let's just talk about how that was kind of a game changer because you wasn't, it wasn't your path necessarily to get married. No, I'd some, some, I mean, by 34, you start thinking... Well, should I compromise? I mean, really, what am I supposed to do now? Because the feminism was blowing a hard wind, and it was hard to really um, know what you should focus on. And then I met Louis at um, 
Dion von Furstenberg's house in Connecticut, very glamorous setting, uh, at a lunch. And he was as socially ill at ease as I was. And, um, and then we met again and we sat next to each other at a dinner party. We never spoke. And, um, and then he called up out of the blue and said, I'm, I'm in Montreal. I'm editing a film. Would you, I'm coming to New York. Would you like to have lunch? And so we had lunch at the Russian Tea Room. I miss it so much. And uh, we had a three-hour lunch. Um, he never stopped talking, actually. He, and, and he, you know, I just thought, this is the most brilliant man, and here I am, and I get to sit next to him and hear his brain work and what. And, and we got married very soon after we met. We met in March, and we got married in September in France, at his house in France. And he wrote you some unbelievable love letters that you quote in the book. It's I mean, the, the most reaction I get on the book is, those were the most beautiful letters I've ever... I mean, he was the, a wonderful writer and very romantic and um, demonstrative in these letters. And, and I've, of course, kept every one of them. Do you them. mind if I read one, no. a couple lines? Candy, you've brought me wisdom or the beginning of wisdom, which I never knew before. Always restless, always searching. Finding you, I have started to find myself. It's a long way, maybe, but it's here already. I would like, like to say my husband is not here tonight. Can take can take a, a memo. Um, but he was back and forth with France. You were back and forth to France. Let's just talk about your relationship to France. Just the country itself really started to play a role in your life, and ultimately in Chloe's. And his relationship with it, you describe as complicated. Yes. Oh, um, my husband was from a, a an old very good French family, and he came from money. And even though there were many kids, because it was a Catholic family, um, they still got money. And, of course, he spent it as soon as he could because he thought it was sort of tainted and corrupting. Um, and he, and I think the French always felt that he abandoned them because he left... Uh, the first movie he made was with Jacques Cousteau as Cousteau's cameraman on The Silent World. So that was his first role, and uh, he was with Cousteau for a few years, and Cousteau was a very close friend. And, and then he was just a, a, a young wonder boy in France, and then he went to America. And I don't think the, fr the French ever forgave him for that. And then for Au um, Revoir les Enfants, he got seven César, which is the French Oscar which looks like a compacted car. It's the ugliest award I have ever seen um, and weighs about 12 pounds and you use it as a doorstop and sort of defense weapon. Uh, um, but the French finally said, okay, welcome back because he'd come back to France and made a very powerful movie on um, a Jewish child uh, at his school in, outside of Paris being denounced to the Gestapo, which was his story. And he waited until he was, he waited until his 50s to tell it because he didn't feel that he was ready until then. Um, so he, he, I think, had reservations about the French. And yet it was his roots. And as we get older, then he wanted to move back to Paris because he wanted to go home. And I wanted to go to Los Angeles because I wanted to go home. And um, so you get pulled by life uh, in sometimes opposite directions. Um, I, I, I think the French are 
the most graceful people. And they constantly have surprised me by, by behaving in, in unexpectedly graceful ways. Oh, for instance, with America and our churlish adolescent behavior with Iraq and the fact that France didn't support our going into Iraq and we, you know, called them freedom fries and we poured the wine in the toilets. And I mean, you know, could it have been more humiliating? And they never said a word. And then when Iraq turned into the disaster that it did, they never said a word. And I thought that was very elegant. Um, so they're, they're, they're unique people and they're not easy, but um, <laughs> but they're, I, I have tremendous respect for the French. And since uh, Louis' death, which we will uh, touch on, you still go back, you still go to the house that we went to. So that was part of your life, I mean, has been part of your life the same way, with the same regularity and frequency? No, no, no. Since, I, since I remarried, um, I hadn't been to the house for 15 years, oh. 14 years, and my daughter got married in July at the house in France in the same room where Louis and I were married in the mayor's office in the village, which is a village of 120 people. Um, and, um, and she had all of her friends from college, which she had 40 people was the entire wedding party because there was no place for them to stay. It was so remote an area in France. And um, it was so moving to be back at the house and to, and to kind of rejuvenate my roots there. And, and I... And I think I had ignored the depth of the connection that I had made with that area, which is a very, very pure, authentic part of France. Um, and we went to the house in February to do the pre-planning. So it, it, was, um, it was lovely. It was altogether a joyous experience. And when you decided to have a child, that was also a leap. Um, was he on board fully for that? for that decision, even though he was obviously a participant? <laughs> um, actually, I didn't, I didn't mention it to him. And, <laughs> and looking back, it was unfair uh, because, I mean, he had said that it was up to me. And he said, you know, a child is a gift you give yourself. But I have, he has two great children who are 15 years older than Chloe. And... Um, he said, it's, it's your choice. And sort of the way I wrote the book, I just kind of, oh, okay, I'm just going to do and, um And I got pregnant very quickly at a very advanced age of 39. And I told him, and he just looked like he'd been hit with a club. And, of course, I could have handled it a lot more gracefully, as the French would have. But um, and then And then he was just over the moon about my daughter, just just loved her, loved her to bits. And you were turned upside down, it sounds like, from yeah. this book. I mean, it really was just, there's, there's the BC before Chloe yeah. and after Chloe. Yeah. Why was it, if you can describe, although it's hard to describe a love, why was it so seismic, would you say? Well, first of all, I... I was very uncertain about my sense of maternalism. My, my, my relationship as a kid with my mother had been very strained and sort of turbulent. And, um, 
I thought, well, I'd be okay if I had a son, but if I had a daughter, I just don't want to relive that with my daughter because it, it was it was very difficult for, for both of us. And then we came out of it because of Chloe. But um and I I didn't I didn't know what I would do. I mean, it was I I had when I would see babies, it was sort of like eh. um I, I had very little response to to children. You said you weren't sure you would love a baby as much as a dog. I was certain of that. She's your passion. <laughs> There's a lot of dog love in this book, too. <laughs> yes, it, I actually go into my dogs. It's probably could have been cut right away, but uh, publishing being what it is, it stayed in. Um, and um, but then she arrives. Then she arrived, and I mean, you know, and then and then you just cry for the next. 30 years. Uh, it, it just, um, it just was... blows through every, every remaining defense that you have erected in your, in your self and your consciousness. And just, um, and she was not an easy baby. I was going to say, you called her a tiny terrorist. <laughs> Jeez, I didn't remember that. Well, she was. Yeah, she was like a cactus. I also called her a cactus. But, um, but, but that was I, as a baby. That was her baby time, right? Yes. And then and then then she She became, mellowed. Yeah, she mellowed and she was great. Um But you guys have, it really strikes me, this really intense fun and routines and private jokes and and I think it sounds like it was partly because you were in the crucible of your own or the petri dish of just your own it was very separate from Louis, really, it seems. <gasps> Well, because by then, I was living in Los Angeles because I was doing Murphy Brown. And and that complicated things because my husband had wanted to move back to France. I'd wanted to spend a little time in L.A. My mother lived there. My brother was there. And that's where my roots were. And, um, and life got very messy. Uh, and we kept separate finances. And I have always sort of earned my own keep. I never took any money from my family, nor was I offered any money. Um, and uh, you, you do have to mention that Charlie was written in the will. Um, yes, he was. My, my father was a ventriloquist, and he had a f- very famous dummy at the time called Charlie McCarthy, and, and Charlie was in the will. And, and it was a very beautiful section of the will, unless you were me. And... Uh, <laughs> And and it left a certain amount of money to Charlie to be distributed to kids. I don't remember what because I blocked it out. Uh, and um, and I think my father thought I was making enough money on my own. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so back so back to the show. So I I not only responded to the script of Murphy Brown because it was just unique writing in every way and smart and um but I needed to earn a living and as an actor that's very sporadic um so and my husband was a hundred percent supportive and he knew the second he saw the script that he was screwed basically it was that I had to do it and that it was perfect for me and um and then and then it meant just long commutes and that's, um, you know, that, that wears a relationship down. Also the fame, if you can touch on that. I mean, you really, it was explosive. 
success, and it didn't end. It just kept going and growing. Um, you talk very frankly about the hurdles of that, and I don't know if that was so much sexism as just the strains of him being in the same business. He had been famous first. Can you talk about yeah. that? Well, I mean, the 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 reception to Murphy was so immediate, and um, and it's and it's very heady. Even even though I was much older than I was forty one when I started the show, so you know, you know better than to react to it in a way that um, is disproportionate, and yet you can't really stop yourself because <laughs> people are are so positive and so supportive and it's um and he was kind of never mentioned and he was not I mean that's that's usually what happens to the the wives of powerful men they they get disappeared but um so that was um that was a a test as well I'm just going to read a little bit from that section. My rising celebrity redefined Louis and me. It changed the weight in our relationship. The elevation of my status after Murphy Brown debuted in November 88 was instantaneous. A month later, Louis and I went to a press screening. Louis was tense, dark, oppressive, a black hole sucking in everything in its, pa in its path. There was a line of photographers. Louis scowled, pretended not to hear people. He took offense at imaginary slights. They were talking to you, not me. They don't even see me. I vowed never to go to an event with him, again with him. It was too tough, too tense. We went home and I reheated a dinner. Yeah. You have to take greater care than that. Um, yeah, I mean, you but know. But it wasn't when, your fault. I mean, it, it, it wasn't strikes me my this fault, is what's but, so hard about this is that it was coming to you and you deserved it. And at the same time, I understand how he wanted still to have your focus, but... Well, yeah, it, it, it ruptured the... Well, as, as did Chloe, frankly, um, because I, I fell in love with Chloe and I didn't notice him once Chloe was born. I mean, he, he would come back after being in Paris for two weeks and, and, and it was like, oh, are you back? Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. You say that he kind of interrupted the, the rhythm you had with Chloe, that you guys would have your 
your routines and your games, and, and suddenly dad would be back. What did she call him, by the way? Uh, she called him Poppy, and um, uh, Louis's other kids call him Lulu. And I said, but Chloe's not going to call you Lulu because children need a father. And um, so she called him Poppy. And, and Louis and I also had been married for five years when I had Chloe. So we had the kind of rapport that Chloe and I developed. And, um, I mean, we were, it, it was a very good marriage and, and, and very blessed. And then Chloe came and then, and then I was just, uh, over the moon. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly a negotiation that's tricky. It also struck me that you were very fierce about wanting it to be, wanting to be her mother and be there, um, which I know a lot of working mothers struggle with generally, but you made that commitment and stuck to it no matter what it took. So the Murphy Brown schedule, as you describe it, is much more grueling than I realized. And I know you say a half hour show is easier than an hour, but it was, you describe it as a train that once it left the station really didn't pause. Somehow you were still going to every parent-teacher thing, you were doing carpool. How did you, how were you managing all of that? Well, a, a half hour show is the most humane schedule, but if you're the lead in a half-hour show and it's a show that is a new show and you have to do publicity every time you're not working and you're trying to establish the show and you have to blanket the press when a show takes off, um, it, it's very intense. And just learning the lines, Murphy Brown had a longer script because we played it so fast um, that other scripts were sort of 15 pages shorter than ours, so you had a lot of dialogue. And you were in learn. every scene. And I was in every scene for nine years, and then in the 10th, they gave me two scenes off. Um, and, um, and so Anne Murphy was driving the show. So it was, it was a lot for someone who'd never even seen a half-hour show. I mean, I, I was traveling so much that I'd never watched a half-hour show. I never saw Mary Tyler Moore. I never saw I Love Lucy. Chloe loved I Love Lucy. But um, so I was, I was just kind of getting my legs. And um, so, in terms of the Chloe time, you just squeezed in. You, we, I, I, but you don't have to be at the studio until nine thirty, and then you can leave at four or five. Except on Thursdays when you work later, and then Fridays you shoot the show in front of an audience, and you go home around eleven or midnight. Unless you're a show that's not well run, like Diane English's show, when you go home at four or five in the morning, because they keep rewriting, but we didn't have that. Um, and then you have a week off a month, and that is a godsend because you get to go to the doctor. And, um, you know, all of the things that pile up during the other three weeks. So it's, it's very intense. But then when it's over for the season, you're sort of, now what do I do? Because you suddenly have this gaps of free time and um but uh, chloe and i and uh, she would sleep in my bed all the time and we would have date nights and we would have you know we'd bring our food in on trays and have it in bed and we'd watch uh, cartoons in the morning it was just it was great so his illness is a very difficult section of the book and part of what i think the reader gets is a sense of feeling very trapped as in addition 
to just the caretaking and the pain of his dying, that there, you describe it as no escape. Can you talk about what exactly, why exactly that, that was your description? Well, your, your life changes in a heartbeat, literally. I mean, your, my life, which had always been very privileged and, and very, um, very lucky, suddenly you're this cloud um, settles over you, and it's a cloud that that sucks up all the oxygen, and you literally have have trouble breathing because the anxiety is so profound that you're going <gasps> that you can't get get a deep breath because there's your your only focus is to to get the person who's ill well, and um, and you fail at that, so you know you you. You get phone calls from people who creep out from under rocks saying, you know, I'm in Tijuana and I've got this doctor and this is his specialty. And you go, well, I don't know. Maybe I should send her 70000 You don't. But I mean, you, you're, you, and, and I could afford help. And I, and I had wonderful nurses, but not until months into it. And he, um, my husband's illness uh, was uh, in his brain. And so it affected his motor, her, his motor senses. So he couldn't, couldn't walk after a while. He couldn't speak. And um, so it was a very catastrophic illness that went on for a while and very hard on my daughter. You know, just, uh, it, it's, it's really a lot. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm not emotional. I'm just crying. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you parent through that? Because she was still very young and obviously had a complicated relationship with him as close as they were just because of his absences. Did you worry about the impact on her of seeing all of this play out in real time? Well, our rooms were, we lived in a very small house and, and her, Chloe's room was right next to our room. And, um, and I began sleeping in the, the housekeeper's room in the back of the house once he got sick. And, uh, and, Chloe's relationship with Louis had been strained because there had been a lot of absence because of his being in France and wanting to work in France again. Um, and so, but she, out of a sense of duty, began climbing into his hospital bed with him and reading to him and bringing him food. And, um, and then they began to have a relationship that was um, very moving and, and, meant everything to both of them. And of course, for her, I think she really misses what, and he would have been, because he was so intelligent, Louis, and would have been able to direct her in in the years between, you know, 20 and 30. He would have been such a great partner for her to have. But, um, and and she and I would go, we took a couple of trips just to escape because, um, Everyone in this tiny house was, that was what you dealt with all all the time, every minute. And and it makes everyone, you get caregiver syndrome, which is that, you know, whatever losses you've had in the past come bubbling up to the surface. So everyone's dealing with everything that they've dealt with 20, 30 years ago. And it's I'm back, and so everybody's trying not to go crazy because there's a higher priority. But, um, and you say that the Murphy cast and the and the the job 
really helped you heal. People said, oh, and so heroic, and you worked through the whole thing. I thought it was what kept me sane was having, because during the first months of his illness, I was on hiatus. And so I would, you know, put the wheelchair in the car and and we would go to just the endless round of doctors. And then when I went back to work, I, I was just so relieved to, and because I, everybody was so supportive at work and so loving that I was so happy to be there. And, um, and that, and that, and I have no memory of the, that year. I mean, people just like, okay, go here and pushing me there. And okay, speak now. And I'd write my lines on, in the bottom of coffee mugs and I'd write them on the railings of the staircase. Just, I, I was just, um, you know, really walking through it. And, but but Chloe and I went, we took one week, we went to Aspen. A friend of ours had a house in Aspen because we just had to, to get out. And and then we took another week, we went to Hawaii. And, and that was lovely. And um, she made friends with people. And we were at a hotel that was a very pure hotel. So there was no TV, there were no phones. And she was off, you know, exploring when this kids program and I was there in my hale, which is what you call a cottage in Hawaii. And um, I was just sort of alone by, for a week, but it was, and people were lovely to me there. They, um, they would invite me to have dinner with them in the dining room. And, um, um, and then afterward, when my husband died, the, the people in the hotel sent a, a card and I, I was just very touched by that. And in terms of, uh, the post-Louis anxiety about Chloe's education and cultural kind of growth. Uh, you say that you worried that suddenly without him, you were going to have to make up for that, and you didn't have that to give her in the same fluid, kind of natural way. No, and I, and I overcompensated. I mean, I took her to things. I took her to Macbeth called Zulu Macbeth. I didn't realize it was in Zulu. And... <laughs> I took her and her cousin Jackson Mal, and they were like, what are we doing here? I mean, they, they didn't know what they were saying. It was like a bunch of Zulus speak, performing Macbeth and Zulu. So we left at the halftime. And, um, and then I took them for ice cream because I really owed them. But I, I would take her to, we would come here for Thanksgiving week and Christmas. We'd come here on uh, whenever we could, and during the summer we would be here and I would just take her to theater and exhibits and and I mean she's um she's now the social editor at Vogue and she has superior social skills uh and and knows everything that's happening in the city so something took root um let's talk about your Emmys for a minute because there, you broke the record at the time. I did I did? I'm so <laughs> proud. <laughs> Let's give that to her. Um, I thought it was pretty stunning that you pulled yourself out of the running for that last year. Um, what was it, it the? It wasn't thinking? the last year. It was the last few years. Right. No, and, I mean um, after after the fifth. Right. Well, and it didn't seem like it was a big deal to me. I just didn't when the form came in, I just didn't submit myself. That's the image, you fill out a form and you nominate yourself. And I just didn't nominate myself because what I valued the most about Murphy was the camaraderie with the cast and the crew. And um, every time I won an Emmy, it took me a week 
to wrench it back to normal because the cast, who deserved it far more than I did, and I got it because of them, but they, they were distant, and I just hated it. And also, the, the fifth Emmy, I could feel the audience think, really? And uh, even though they had voted for me, but I thought, it's time. It's just, it's enough. Let's talk about Dan Quayle for a minute, because we don't want to... <laughs> I've never met him. Yeah, I can't believe that. I know. We can arrange that, maybe. <laughs> um, that was to just revisit that in your book, and then just for me to go back and look at the headlines and the... Um, what a storm. And, and, and it lasted. Uh, it lasted because it happened at the beginning, as we are, of a presidential campaign, and it was his campaign slogan. And then you take for the young people? Family here? values, sorry. No, let's, let's explain Dan, Dan what Quayle ran as vice president with George Bush. He was a moron from... <laughs> oh, this is a good, this is a good narrative <laughs> encapsulation. <laughs> yes, I, I'm summing so it up. Um, he was, what was he, a senator from one of the I states. Uh, <laughs> Indiana, Iowa. And um, he... In his campaign, uh, Murphy Brown had a, a baby as a single mother, and that was a very big deal. And we debated it on the show, and we thought... So the father of the baby was Murphy's ex-husband, which we thought kind of covered it, but um, not for the right. And um, so it was very scandalous, which, when you think about it now... is. Um, and so Quayle made a speech in San Francisco where his speechwriter, who was a woman who has retired to raise her children as a good mother should, and I'm, I don't deny that, but um, she had put in a, a crack about uh, Murphy Brown and, and denying the importance of fathers, and then she had deleted it, and Quayle reinserted it. And it was very savvy of him because the media latched onto it, and, and family values became his campaign catchphrase. And then, ironically, Clinton co-opted it. I thought, well, this is really going to be interesting, because um, of all the things that Clinton could lay claim to, that was perhaps not one of them at that time. <laughs> and so it became a media firestorm. I mean, it was... <laughs> It was on the front page of the New York Times. There was a picture above the fold of me holding the baby from the last episode of Murphy, where Murphy has the baby. And it's, it was the headline across the front page of the New York Times. And then it was the headline across tabloids in Philadelphia and New York. And it was, Murphy has baby, Quail has cow. And uh, <laughs> Quail to Murphy, you slut. Uh, <laughs> And I would sort of come in from, I came from Philadelphia where I was doing something and I came back and there was the headline. I was like, whoa. And, and I, I just went, I just got in bed. I just, I didn't make a comment. They said, aren't you going to say something? Nope, I'm not. I'm not saying anything. And um, but so. But you, you finally, you finally did. Can you talk about when you spoke out, the editorial that you wrote? Yeah, I don't even remember that basically. It was just. I was answering her letter. Oh, that's right. I think. Okay, so we won't go and, there. Um, but yes, I made a. It, but it was very sort of pro forma. And... Um, but when you look back on that, and and just Murphy as a feminist 
kind of icon of some kind, or certainly kind of a cultural icon. How do you, in retrospect, look back on whether she actually, you had an impact? I mean, is that too much? Is that putting too much on it? Well, when we were making Murphy, we were so busy making the show that you couldn't judge the impact that it had because you didn't watch it because you, it was enough. But um, now, uh, the years after Murphy, I, I have young women coming up to me. Now they're not so young. but And they say, Murphy was so important to me growing up. And my mother and I always watched Murphy together. And during the last year of Murphy, Murphy had breast cancer, which was a beautifully written year. Um, very moving and and still funny somehow, and the the young women who came up to me who had lost their mothers to breast cancer with tears in their eyes, and it was, I mean, it was just it was very powerful, and um, so I, I sort of wonder what impact it would have had on me if I had had a character like Murphy to to grow up with, because it really there was nobody on TV that was a woman in that kind of power, especially in the media, which, which women were just starting to make a, a foothold in. But she wasn't all only feisty. What I, I really was struck by was you're, you kept emphasizing that she didn't care what other people thought of her, which I think is such a female mm -hmm. trap, and that, you want, that in that sense it had an impact on you, that in some way she rubbed off on you. Yes, yes. I mean... It, yes, I, I, I wish I could have been in some ways more like Murphy. On the other hand, she, she would just suck the oxygen out of the room. And <laughs> I, I always sort of, I often had a, a little fight with the writers about the end of the episode because I wanted her to somehow redeem herself by the end of every episode. And I mean, they wanted to have her coming back from a work assignment missing her son's birthday when he was one. And, or to, and I said... I'm sorry, but I won't be in this episode. Find someone else to play Murphy. And because it was so cruel. And I thought, you know, you can't make her a mother, which is already taking on a lot for a comedy show, and then have her be an absentee mother. It's not acceptable. So let's go into the, the, the final love of the book, which is Marshall Rose. And there's a little bit of a 60 Minutes connection there in terms of how you met him. Yeah. We, we actually were introduced, and I didn't find out until the wedding that it was a setup, but um, by your former boss, Don Hewitt, who was the founder of 60 Minutes. And Don Hewitt and Marilyn Berger, his wife, um, were friends with Marshall, and my name came up because we had just done the 60 Minutes piece a few months before. And um, Marshall said, well, I'd like to meet her. So they, so Don said to me, well, I, and we'd been talking about something else, and he said, well, I'd, I'd love to have a dinner for you. I said, great. So then three days before the dinner, he was so sly. He said, oh, um, he called me up, and he said, by the way, uh, um, a man's going to pick you up before the dinner. His name is Marshall Rose. And I said, yeah, fine. And um, I just thought it was like a car service, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then the driver was really handsome. <laughs> and um, so Marshall took me to the Hewitts, and... I mean, just, and I had not gone out at all in three years. I had a lunch and a drink and a dinner over three years. So it was not intense dating. And, um, and I looked at Marshall and he, his wife had 
passed away around the same time that my husband had. So that was a very important core to have in common and um, and was an immediate connection. And, and of course, he's a very connecting guy. He's just all about being Jewish. <laughs> but actually, I'm sorry, but that's what it is. But you do, the Judaism or the Jewishness comes up in his, the family intensity, the fact that you said, you oh. know, suddenly you would go out to dinner with his family and then go home and he was on the phone talking about the dinner with his family. I know. And I said, I think this is excessive. <laughs> Welcome to the Jews. <laughs> and one thing, I don't know if I put this in the book. I think I didn't. It was a mistake. But he was sort of hanging around in the kitchen and and I said, okay, so I'm, 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 what are you doing here? And he said, well, you know what they say? <laughs> the British leave and never say goodbye, and the Jews say, say goodbye, goodbye and never leave. <laughs> <laughs> this crowd can handle that. Um, but he also is a synagogue goer, and at well, least on the high holidays, and he has to deal with a... <laughs> He has to deal with a big Christmas. He, he had a great rabbi. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Peter Abby's Rubenstein. Rabbi. Yes, was my rabbi and married them. Um, what, though, he has adjusted to your Christmas extravaganzas, and how's that going? He's been a very good sport okay. about having Gentile Christmases. Well, not that there's a Jewish Christmas, but um, <laughs> he, he's, he's basically defined as a good sport. He just goes along until he doesn't. <laughs> and then you get out of his way. But um, so he's, yes, Chloe and I, and, and w when Chloe would live at home, we would play Chipmunk's Christmas carols, which people really found hard to take, frankly. And, <laughs> and uh, we would just put them on the 1st of December and then wouldn't take them off until December 25th. So it was a lot to ask. So, uh, but speaking of the Chipmunks, you also have this kind of, you call it bunny language yeah. with Chloe, and that that was a little bit, I think, hard for him. Yes, it, it was very exclusive of Marsha. I mean, Chloe and I, and we would speak, it was like a funny voice, and we just thought it was so endearing. Um, <laughs> and he was just uh, ready to move on, and he just, I'll be in my office, and he just get up and leave the room. But what about their relationship on a more serious note? There were clearly hurdles there, and you talk about those very honestly. What were some of them? One of the hurdles was that Marshall tried way too hard for years. And, and my daughter, I mean, my daughter moved at 14 from Los Angeles where she had a fantastic house and friends and dogs and, and left her life to move in with Marshall and his apartment in New York. And while it's a beautiful apartment and she made wonderful friends at school, it's, it's asking a lot. And, um, and Marshall was always sort of hovering. And then finally, finally, he relaxed. And my daughter, the first year, brought him a Father's Day cake and, um, and loves him. Just uh, Marshall is, and I mean, sees his faults, and I see her doing deep breathing to get through some of it. But, uh, <laughs> but she, she loves him. She loves his daughter, Wendy. They're incredibly close. And, um, 
And, and, and that was also very conscious on my part because Marshall is compulsively fatherly. Um, and he... And he's and he was really there for. I mean, we drove her up to college, and we would go to her track meets, and we. I mean, he was he really put in the time, and um, and she. It was remarked by her, and uh, she. She really values him tremendously in her life, and I, and I was hoping that that would be the case. And I thought, you know, in case something happens to me, I'd like her to have a fallback position as a parent because, and I knew that Wendy would be a possible, you know, and I mean, you just wanted to have a system in place. We're about to go to questions, so please think of them. But just in in terms of the arc, your sort of romantic arc or your relationship arc, where do you find yourself now? as honest as you can say? Like, where have you landed? Um, it's, it's extremely comforting. It's, I, I, I mean, my husband is um, a wonderful man, and I love him, and I am so grateful that he came into my life, and I'm so grateful that he made, I mean, I think I was in my late 50s when I, I first met him, and it was, no man his age would have ever even looked at a woman as old as I was. Really, um, the, it just, there was, yeah, there was always like a, a, a young blonde in the corner. And I mean, there women. You said he had a line out the door. Oh, please. In New York City, you have no idea. <laughs> These women are professionals. Uh, <laughs> I am not kidding. I, uh, it's frightening. And I mean, one woman would scan the obits and she showed up at the apartment for when everyone when they were sitting shiva and she gave marshall her card and said if you ever want to see a movie or have dinner call me it's a shonda <laughs> a shame very good and i can't wait for you to buy the book which i hope you all do and she signed a whole bunch of them and thank you all for coming thank you That was Candace Bergen talking to Abigail Pogrebin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes.